Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Super excited to be talking about social impact tech. We have Shannon Farley and Kevin Berenblatt joining us on the show. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you so much for coming on. I Thank love your you. work. I'm so excited for this show. Thank you. Yeah, and huge shout out to Andrew for introducing us. Yeah. I'm super grateful for him. For those that don't know, Shannon Farley and Kevin Berenblatt are co-founders of Fast Forward, which accelerates tech for social impact. They've accelerated 41 tech nonprofits impacting 51 million lives so far. And you can find the links in the bio below to ffwdfforward.org and then also the Twitter profile and the LinkedIn profiles for Shannon and Kevin both. All right, you guys, let's start things off with one of our favorite questions to ask our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? I'm worried. I feel that with rising income inequality and the social inequity that trails from that, we have big problems ahead of us. And often our focus is not on our biggest social problems, where it probably should be. Yeah. Uh, I think it depends on a little bit on where you sit. Uh, I think if you're a human and you're born today in the lottery of humanity, uh, chances are you might be better off than you were 100 or 1,000 or uh, more years ago. Um, but if you're most any other living thing on Earth, um, I might be more worried. Uh, and if the Earth itself, I think I would also be, be worried about the impact that we're having on the planet. The times are both incredible and they're also really, there's a lot of challenges yeah. that are facing us. And sometimes we talk about this on the show that in Silicon Valley, are we focused on the most pressing challenges on the planet or are we doing these incremental tiny things for the elite already? And how do we also ethically evolve ourselves to be able to see that better mm -hmm. and to be able to help so that wherever you're birthed into the lottery mm -hmm. that you have a equality of opportunity to pursue what drives you, what is your North Star and how, yeah. Yeah, so that's something that we love talking about a lot and I'm glad that you guys brought that up yeah. that's good yeah it was the inspiration for fast forward in fact because about six years ago when I met Shannon I was uh, I'm an entrepreneur um, spent most of my life as an entrepreneur and I was looking around trying to figure out what company I was part of spending a lot of time with other entrepreneurs and I was really impressed by how much progress uh, entrepreneurs here in the Bay Area can make with very little money and I'd meet folks who had built like these amazing solutions, um, but it wasn't clear what problems they were solving. These are like photo apps and dog babysitting daycare things. You know, it's like here we are in a world surrounded by by problems, and it was frustrating to me that uh, we didn't have any resources for folks who really wanted to be mission driven and start first with the problem. What led you both? to this realization. So what are your journeys leading up to Fast Forward that got you guys excited about where you're at now? I started my career in nonprofits. I first helped start a prison reform group in the early 2000s and later I went and ran a global women's fund. And that women's fund in particular was sort of like an early stage tech nonprofit. It was a decentralized voting mechanism for us to pool donations and distributed them to women around the world. And we did all of the voting on a wiki. It was completely democratized and it was really exciting. But we had all of the problems that the tech nonprofits Fast Forward supports have in that we were working on social issues and applying tech to it, but there were very few funders who understood the model. There were very, there were no founder communities at the time where you could gather with other social entrepreneurs who were thinking about how you apply tech to big social problems. And uh, it was nascent and hard and lonely. And so I have deep empathy for the groups that we work with. So I was really interested in how do you apply the best technology to the biggest social problems and create the dynamics in which that's possible. And I was lucky enough to go to a party and I sat next to Kevin and he had a different journey, but we ended up at the same spot. I came to California from Texas because I wanted to be an engineer. I thought engineers helped and tech uh, could solve problems. 
And around the time that I uh, met Shannon on my entrepreneurial journey, I uh, was a recovering ad optimizer. I never grew up wanting to become an ad optimizer, but I feel like that's where so much of no our- no one does. No one <laughs> dreams of being an ad optimizer. But yeah, so much of our uh, attention and energy these days is put uh, into things like ad optimization. So uh, for me, I was looking to do something very, very different. And that's when I um, went out talking to other, other folks looking for inspiration. Um, but instead, I feel like I sort of found frustration because I was um, really impressed um, with how far entrepreneurs could get with very little money, but not with the problems that they set out to tackle. And what was different from other times that I had started out on the entrepreneurial journey was how easy it was actually to start a company, and a tech company in particular, because the cost of starting them had come down so much that it opened up a new kind of opportunity, a new market opportunity, if you will, uh, to solve not just business problems, but actually uh, social problems too. You guys are like the embodiment of uh, actually tackling social problems and not, and you leveraging the best tech for that and trying to funnel in the right resources, human talent as well, and monetary resources. Yeah. Yeah, that's you speak your, your you walk the talk. You yeah yeah you do, which is it's great that you guys found each other to embark on it together. So then okay, so that's six years ago. You mm -hmm. find each other to embark on this, and then what is it like then in the process of starting fast forward, figuring out how you're gonna raise money, identify the right social impact entrepreneurs? How does that process work? We borrowed a playbook from Silicon Valley, so. Around the time I met Shannon, I've been going to a lot of demo days. We wanted to take that same model where you bring a group of really inspiring, passionate people together for a few months' time to work on their ventures and then bring in support, speakers, trainers, mentors, mentors, capital resources in order to set them on the right path to be successful. Uh, and so we borrowed um, that same approach for which there are thousands of accelerators for for-profits um, but none for nonprofits. I say our backgrounds really matter because we're both entrepreneurs, even though we were working in different sectors. So we met in the fall and decided to do this in December, and the first class launched in June. It was a very quick on ramp to doing this thing. And so we had to go find tech nonprofits. When we started, we really only knew five, if we're being honest. We knew, we knew of the household names like Wikipedia and Khan Academy and Kiva, mm -hmm. and then we get stuck. So we had to go find really exciting tech nonprofits. We needed to find people who we thought could give them access to networks they wouldn't otherwise have access to information they may not have seen yet. And uh, by merging our two worlds, we were able to create an ecosystem of support for these teams. And in many ways, now that we're bigger, now that we know really every tech nonprofit in the world so far, um, we still have that same approach. How do you think about merging the social sector and the tech sector? to have exponential impact on these kinds of organizations. Interesting. So the amount of tech nonprofits that that are also doing social impact. So there has to be that both. Yeah, for us, they have to be solving problems that markets won't solve because you're reaching this hardest to reach customer or you're working in a space which there may be a for profit competitor, but you're serving a different customer. Um, and they have to be building technology. So it's not just a nonprofit organization that maybe is using email or a CRM system. Mm -hmm. They're really using the technology to affect the impact. Okay. And then, so who, yeah, so who then, you, you ended up finding five in the first batch, uh -huh. it was? Okay. Yeah. So you found these five tech nonprofits, you incubated them then under the fast forward accelerator. Okay. And then you had high quality mentors, a high quality, um, like kind of like a rigorous system for helping them develop out their projects mm -hmm. out further. Mm -hmm. Because these entrepreneurs have all the challenges that many entrepreneurs are familiar with that tech startups have. They also face the challenges of nonprofits. And so providing them the skills and resources to navigate those challenges is critical for them to be able to, to break out 
the stars and have the impact that they want to have. Yeah. You know, almost all of our entrepreneurs have personal experience with the problem that they set out to solve. And so, uh, and many of them grew up with phones in their pockets. And so when they grew up wanting no one else to experience the same problems that they had, they obviously looked to the technology that they carry around with them every day as part of that solution. And so then give us an, some of the examples of companies that have been coming through. These are in, it's about six month periods, right, of acceleration? It's just three months. It's a three month quick. period. So then you do how many batches every year of companies? Just one batch a year. One batch. Um, there's like someone just over 500 tech nonprofits around the world. And we've now had 41 go through the program. Through the program. Okay. Uh, so it's still, it's a nascent Oh, there's field. only 500 tech nonprofits in the world. There yeah. may be some more, more, but yeah, that's basically That's all we the know number. so far. Yeah. But everyone okay. that's watching the show now can yes. send us uh, the ones they know about. And then the companies, yeah, everyone watching, send fast forward, yeah, yeah tech nonprofits from around the world. And then, then they have to fly to San Francisco, they have to be incubated locally for the three month period? Yeah, that was one of our findings. You know, in traditional Silicon Valley accelerators, you force founders to come to Silicon Valley and move here or live here, be emerged in Silicon Valley culture. For ours, most of our founders don't come from the Bay Area anymore. They come from other places. And it was far more equitable to allow them to fly in and out every couple of weeks. Uh, this is one of the reasons we have far more female founders. It's why we have more founders with experience with the problem. It makes it possible for them to be in this space and take what they learn here back home. Okay, gotcha. So it doesn't permanently have to be here those three months. Right. Come in, learn, engage, bring back what you learn out to the communities that you're residing in. Mm -hmm. And that also gives flexibility for women then as well, families, that yeah. type of stuff, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We originally thought we started fast forward that the easiest way to scale would be to launch this in New York or London or Delhi or Shanghai and different places around the world that can really, where there are entrepreneurs who are thinking about how they can leverage tech to scale their impact. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that most entrepreneurs who come through the program feel like they've tapped out their local networks and are in fact are super excited to come here and experience the magic of the Bay Area. Maybe like when you moved here um, six or seven yeah, years, years ago, ago yeah. uh, they too want to come and experience what it's like to be inside of a tech company and walk the streets of San Francisco mm -hmm. and meet people at restaurants that are all working in tech. And mm -hmm. so that's actually a, a you know an important part of the program. So let's talk about the program. So what happens when you when you identify the companies, which I assume takes a long time then to pick the right ones and bring them in, and then what do they go through? What is the fast forward acceleration program? It's training and everything a nonprofit would need and everything a tech startup would need to get started. So everything from fundraising and ethics of distribution uh, to, which would be the nonprofit side, to for-profit, thinking about growth hacking, thinking about architecture, how you would build your useful thing in the world. We also connect them with mentors, about 100 from the tech and philanthropic sector. So by the time they leave us, they have their own network that can help them scale their ideas. Um, we also give them money, which is a really important part, right? The, there are few funders who understand technology. Many are risk adverse and nervous about investing in early stage organizations. So we give them general support money and we help them raise additional funds through our demo day programs. Okay. And what's the amount of seed funding that you help them with? We give them $25,000. $25,000. Okay, cool. And so then what, what, what are these things that you're listing this like ethics of distribution? Like what are they, what is this stuff? As someone who spent most of my career in the for-profit space, uh, when I think of nonprofit, I think that it's just easy because like everything is focused on impact. There aren't these other stakeholders to worry about. There's no shareholders. You don't have to worry about maximizing profits. We can just focus on impact. But the reality is even within the construct of a mission-oriented organization, there's still sometimes tough decisions to be made. Uh, how do you think about, do you think about impact as just maximizing the area of the number of um, people served and um, how you're, you're serving them? Or are you specifically going after populations that no other folks will go after? Mm. And when you think about it in terms of technology, uh, there's organizations, let's say, that create open source software. Mm -hmm. 
So it's like, look, we're just going to make this available. Anyone with the resources to use it and leverage it um, can use that technology. Or you could decide to have um, a more hands-on approach. Like they're, with technology, one of the great things about tech is it scales really well. So it helps organizations have bigger impact without their costs also getting bigger. But uh, one of the challenges is that like a lot of the features that tech products will build can apply to a wide variety of audiences. And so if you're building tools for uh, patient, you know, for doctors and hospitals or to teach kids to be uh, better readers, uh, is that available to anyone? Or are you specifically going after low-resourced schools? And these are all ethical decisions for which there's not necessarily a right answer, but that even mission-focused organizations have to make these trade-offs about where they allocate their yeah. scarce resources. Interesting. Okay, so then as you have this tech nonprofit mission with these individual companies, then they have this ethics of distribution. It's almost like a dilemma of sorts. You gotta figure out where, how, how to adequately identify people that are underserved and help them while also being able to sustain the, the project itself. So that's kind of an equilibrium that well, needs to be. We talk about that a lot. Like once you decide who your core customer is, right? Uh, the business model follows from it. So if you decide that you're Khan Academy and you want free education for everyone anywhere, you have a particular kind of business model versus a group that is more interested in kids who are just coming from schools that have most of their children on free and reduced lunch. And there is a different business model that goes to serving still a software platform, still a platform that is teaching kids online, but thinking about the unique needs of that customer. Khan Academy can run Super Bowl commercials and get sponsorships and funding from foundations. This smaller group that's working on a niche customer, they may be working directly with school districts and getting paid for access to the data that they're get, gaining on the students. They may be paid um, also by individual donors, but there's, there's different kinds of earned revenue strategies, which is what we call it in the nonprofit space. Mm. Uh, but one of the things about tech nonprofits in particular is they really lend themselves to licensing models. So we encourage folks to choose first, who do you want to serve? And you have to be really clear on why you want to serve that person uh, or that issue area, and then you can sort of build the business model around it. It seems obvious, but in, some, in many ways, it can be uh, the opposite order from what you might see in some yeah. for-profits, where you see, you start with the product, the solution, and then you segment your customers based on who's the most profitable, who's the easiest to serve. Uh, and that's where you focus your organization's energy. That's where the 80-20 rule comes from is that you can get 80% of your profits you know, from 20% of the, the mm. customers. And the challenge that many of the organizations we work with as mission impact oriented organizations is they're trying to, to, they're focusing on the ones that are ignored. They're maybe harder to reach, harder to serve, yeah. or they're the ones who, for whom the products haven't yet been built. And so by starting with the customer and then thinking about their needs and the product, um, it's not just that um, the, the whole path uh, can look very different for that entrepreneur. And they're often, often less committed to the type of solution, right? Which as a tech accelerator makes it really exciting, right? Like you can think about how you pivot a product to best serve that customer, as opposed to I built this thing and now who the hell is gonna buy it? Okay, and then let's go through some of the examples. There's been 41 of these companies. Yeah. That have come through you in the last six years. So what, like, yeah, give us some of these examples. What is the, the tech that they made? How did you guys help accelerate it, um, make more social impact with it? I'm excited for the stories. Yeah. One of our best examples is Common Lit. Common Lit was started by a reading teacher in rural Mississippi, and her name is Michelle Brown. Michelle had like over a dozen reading levels in her classroom and a ton of kids and no books. And you know, she is a bright, ambitious person. She wanted to give each child the best possible education and that's just not easy to do when you have that many kids and that many different reading levels. So she did at the time, which was the only thing available, is she went to Pinterest to find curricula for her students. And she thought that was crazy. So uh, she gets out, she goes to grad school, and this is when we meet her in the story. You know, she had basically written herself all the different curricula she would need for her kids, and she put it on PDFs on a website. 
she had had a small crowdfunding campaign. She raised like around $30,000 from friends and family. And that was the beginning of Common Lit. Well, she goes through the program, fast forward, within a year of fast forward, she was already serving 400,000 kids. Today, just a couple years later, she's serving 10 million kids. Whoa. Yeah, around the US and now uh, increasingly in Latin America. And they take this great content that's where they get royalty-free licenses from publishers like NPR, Sports Illustrated, New York Times. They get teachers uh, who have been vetted to write the curricula and they provide this resource that is always free for teachers. Mm. You know, there are other for-profit products on the market that provide digital literacy curricula, mm. Pearson being the biggest one, mm. but it's not free for teachers. Mm -hmm. So she was solving, Michelle was solving the problem she had. Now their revenue model is they have a paywall in which districts can get insights on their kids, uh, but because they're a nonprofit, they can remain committed to making sure that teachers always have access to the best possible curricula. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like how that one works. Mm -hmm. I like how the the problem being solved of of having it be free um, of a of a literacy curriculum, and then also how there is a monetization strategy that's still embedded within it, so that the district can get these insights on the kids. Yeah. Um, so that way, there's still a way for it to sustain and grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Kevin. One of my favorites is Gavin McCormick. He's the founder of Watt Time. With, when he was a PhD student at University of California, Berkeley, he recognized that he, he was studying energy and the environment. And there's information available on the power grid that tells you which power plant the energy you're pulling from the grid is coming from. Mm. And right now, every time we plug anything into the power grid, even if we're super well-intentioned, like let's say I bought an electric car, electric vehicle, uh, and I think I'm doing good for the planet, um, there's a reasonable chance that your electric vehicle is pulling dirty power, like from uh, coal or other power plants. And so what he did with that insight was build software that would actually only pull the power when it was clean and giving mm. people uh, the power to choose clean energy. To help it scale, he doesn't need to build the software, the hardware, he just provides the software to other folks who are trying to make smart batteries or smart thermostats. Um, and what's super interesting about his approach is rather than some of the other better known uh, social impact tech organizations, tech nonprofits like Mozilla that open source uh, their software, he's actually focused on mis mission sourcing. So it's not available to anyone. There's lots of ways people could use the technology that he's developed in that insight, not all of it's good. You could use it for arbitrage and energy and like other things. Um, but anyone who wants to use the technology to help the environment, who has a similar minded mission, uh, is he's interested in partnering with them to help bring it to, to market. And so I, it's really interesting because it's like a, it's a really unique insight from existing yeah. Uh, software and infrastructure, applying it to like a very specific use case, but then his his approach to bringing it to market is also very mission minded. And one of the things that I think is really revolutionary about Watt Time is so much of environmental justice work has been around behavior change, and they're sort of leapfrogging the behavior change piece by just putting the code on all batteries. Uh, you don't have to change how people are using energy per se. You just make it easier to use clean energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent examples, both of them. So, so okay. So with Common Lit, mm -hmm. um, uh, this is like kids around the United States and now Latin America, and even more so, hopefully around the world, can gain have through their teachers. They can go and download uh, Common Lit, and then these different partners that have partnered with the nonprofit, um, Sports Illustrated. What were the other ones again? The New York Times. New York and Times. NPR. NPR. Yeah. And then, so then they provide a kind of like a, is it, is it like reading material based on my level of literacy? So they can provide like fifth grade reading material or 10th grade reading material. Because if you're a 17 year old, but you're reading at a third grade level, you may be able to read a Sports Illustrated article and start to understand basic concepts around sentence construction mm -hmm. and verb agreement. But the third grade reading level material is super not interesting. And it's hard to engage those students with uh, 
uh, reading level appropriate material that's maybe not age appropriate for their interests. Yeah, this and also this idea of like a closed loop uh, feedback. So mm -hmm. like if the students are slowly gaining literacy to be able to adjust the difficulty of their reading for mm -hmm. that or decrease it if they're having struggling with it. And it's real time insight. You know, they might be missing one concept and you can see it in how they're tracking what they're reading. So we should say it, it is no longer PDFs on a website. It's a full <laughs> web platform uh, that allows you to actively track where a student is in the moment that child is and flag things that maybe are, are or are not working. Mm -hmm. And then with what time too, there's uh, this, uh, we, we always talk about the 100 billion people before us that built civilization and one of the main things that we get endowed with is this abundant electricity is fantastic, but you don't actually know when you plug something into a wall what it's being, where the power is coming from. So, so how do I know that I'm, if I am just using an outlet, mm -hmm how would I know where it is coming from? Like, how would that work? How would I gain the insight that it's coming from clean energy versus not? Wattime has a tool on its website where you can type in your zip code and it'll give you a sense. But one of the challenges of why it's hard to do any other way than in real time with software is that it's actually unpredictable. So, you know, power isn't stored uh, on the grid. The grid doesn't store power. And so the power to utilities need to fire up these eco-unfriendly, power plants in order to meet demand uh, because the renewable uh, green sources, like when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, are sometimes hard to predict. But the thing about the real time uh, making uh, us pulling the power, building that awareness into the devices themselves, means that when the sun does shine and the wind does blow, and that extra excess power becomes available on the grid, you can then charge your battery, turn on your air conditioning, things that um, where you need the power, but it's not super time sensitive. So am I then just, it's zip code based right now? Is On the website, on but the, the website. smart device would actually be reading from the outlet. The smart um, device, so a smart car, et cetera, would read yeah, the from the outlet. the software they build into the chargers themselves. Any smart battery, mm -hmm. HVAC systems, like you can imagine these huge energy uh, guzzlers, but that are latently charging. And the grid updates, I didn't know this until we met Watt time, the grid updates every few minutes. Mm. So in this five minutes, it could be pulling coal, and the next five minutes, it could be pulling wind, and you're just letting it charge while you're sleeping, yeah. might as well pull the wind. Yeah, there was another uh, organization, I forgot how long ago it was, that we spoke to that um, was doing the um, only pulling from the grid when um, it's sustainable as well. So mm -hmm. this is a very important project. I like that one a lot. I like Common Lit a lot. These are very, very good projects. So then, um, so then, what, what other um, examples of tech nonprofits have you guys brought in? And then, what work are they doing socially? I'd love to learn more examples. I think the audience can get really inspired by your examples. Yeah. One of our more recent ones that we're particularly excited about is called Upsolve. Upsolve makes it very simple to apply for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. You may not know this, but uh, it's expensive to apply for bankruptcy. It's like 2000 bucks to get a lawyer to process your documentation. But if you're that broke, that you need to file for bankruptcy, you may not be able to afford $2,000. And so what Upsolve did is they digitized the legal process and that they allow people to apply for Chapter 7 bankruptcy online. Uh, it's a powerful tool for legal justice, mm. and in a very short amount of time, Upsolve has become the largest provider of digital legal aid in the country. Largest provider of digital legal aid? Yeah. More than LegalZoom and all the other ones? Uh, legal aid, so meaning for indigent uh, clients, yeah. For, for poor, for poor folks. Oh, wow, for legal aid, yeah. Legal okay, aid. got it, large legal aid. Uh -huh. Okay, wow, Upsolve. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm not really a favorites person. I have a hard time <laughs> picking favorites. Uh, I think there's so many that are doing such incredible work. Um, I think uh, one that we're working with now that I'm really excited about is OpenAQ. Mm -hmm. And what she's done is she's taken air quality data, actually what she would call air inequality data, because it shows you how unequal uh, air is yeah. in many parts yeah. of the world. and. Uh, digitize it in a single format so that researchers and other folks around the world have better access to this data that's in inconsistent formats um, across the world. So she's taken data from over 160 sources, 
put it in one centralized place and has tens of millions of uh, API calls on her platform Whoa. every month for people who are looking to try to understand uh, how air inequality affects health. Stat that might surprise you, one in eight humans on the planet will die from air inequality because of the air we breathe. Remember like last year when the air was really bad in San Francisco from the fires? There's people who breathe air like that every day. Millions, billions of them around the planet. So her platform makes that more easily accessible uh, and then the data helps drive change. And it's being used by citizen scientists and journalists, policy advocates to think about policies that you could shift and uh, talk about publicly to make better air quality. It's already working. They have some examples in Mongolia and Beijing where simply having an air quality sensor oh, yeah. and making the data public oh, yeah. creates an uprising and that's what's required to make serious social change. Yeah, I think there was a project like that for um, the speed at which the temperature uh, on the planet, or the parts per million on the planet reader, it was like, at, I don't remember, it was like at 415 point, you know, whatever odd numbers down to like maybe like six decimal points down and you could just see it just ticking up over time. And so it got people interested in like seeing a real time data feedback of decreasing our um, carbon emissions on the planet. Mm -hmm. And that same thing can be done for yeah, air quality is a good one. Um, open AQ, open air quality, that's so good. And there, like you gave this example, there's, we even have a friend that's starting to like carry around an air quality reader and just like, yeah, just literally just like, be like, oh, it's, you know, green here, mm -hmm. it's yellow here, it's red here. And that all, that insight, I mean, it's literally every breath of air mm -hmm. because you know, indigenous wisdom from around the world is that every single breath of air, every sip of water, every bite of food is a connection to source, is a connection to where we all come from. And so when we have our breaths of air that are fresh and you can feel that they're fresh and you're literally living longer, you're more connected when it's, when it's a high concentration of all different types of particulate in the air that can be causing us to live less healthy day by day and also longevity wise, that, need, that problem needs to be tackled, especially when there's billions of people on the planet that are living in places that are not um, optimal ocean air style quality. Mm -hmm. So how do, we, how do we make that happen? It's like you could view it as a, if, as we were building all of the artificial cities that are now metropolises that we cram billions of people into that at least now like we if we had the foresight this idea of redesigning civilization or this idea of re-simulating a civilization how would it be more optimal mm -hmm. well make it so that we're all breathing fresh air that there's more space for arcology agriculture and e ecology and architecture um that there's more space there's more uh ways for communities to get together, all these types of um, mm -hmm. ideas about it. So that's another good one. Do you guys have other ones that you want to share? I love these. <laughs> yeah, we have dozens. One of our favorites is like Born and Bred in Silicon Valley. Uh, it was two engineers. They met at MIT and the one comes out here to work at Palantir and the other comes out to work at uh, Oracle. And um, it turns out Atif and Aziz, uh, they both grew up with refugees in their families or recently emigrated to the US and during the Muslim ban they went to the airports like so many of their friends and translated for folks but then they had to go back to work and they realized that translation doesn't have to happen in person you could use technology to unlock bilingual translators who could provide real-time services to people in need and so that's what they did uh, they and a few of their friends went home and they rolled out a very quick app on Facebook Messenger that connected bilinguals with the world's refugees to do things like border crossing translation for basic health care, for legal services, or just to get questions answered. Uh, Whoa, what's it called? It's called Tarjimli. Tarjimli? Tarjimli, which means translate to me in several languages. Tarjimli. Yeah. And they have real stories about how this is working. One of the stories they tell is that a woman who is a Tarjimli volunteer was at her apartment in LA when she got a ping from Tarjimli. Whoa. And there was a boat of Syrian refugees that had capsized off the coast of Turkey. But the NGO that came to rescue them was a Greek NGO, and they didn't speak Turkish. 
and the Turkish Coast Guard didn't speak Greek. So they fired up Tarjimli. One of the refugees had downloaded it before the journey, and she was able to negotiate getting the boat safely into harbor in Turkey. Between Turkish and Greek? Yeah. So that the two could work together so on work. helping the Syrians? Yeah. Wow. Yes. It's you know, she's like yeah. sitting on her couch in LA. And she's in our uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's just answering it via video chat. It's real time impact. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, given these technologists' backgrounds, they could have they could do anything in the world really. They can work for Palantir and Oracle, they can work for any tech company, but they are so committed to this issue because it they have lived experience with what it means to be a refugee in this country that they want to help any refugee out in the world. You stand in a lot of organizations, and I know you talk about it a lot on the the show, but it, ultimately it's about connecting people. Yeah. It's about connecting people to information. It's about connecting people to each other. And so we see that a lot with the organizations that um, we help and that leverage technology focused on their social impact. Oh my gosh, this example of, of just like taking engineers that are already like just brilliant and putting them towards like solving a challenge like yeah. Tarjimli I think is so cool because the talent exists around the world it's just that how do we get the right resources allocated to make it so that people are excited and incentivized how do we yeah. correct the perverse incentives that draw people away from solving these social impact problems but how do we create incentives that inspire people to tackle these yeah. problems mm -hmm. um, fast forward acceleration is, is one of them um, also just new mentalities around prizes. Like this could be something interesting, um, incentivize prizes for people yeah. to, to do like social impact work. Um, yeah, I'm interested here. But yeah, I would say like it doesn't even ahead. require a prize. And this has been like my, my biggest takeaway. A story can be enough yeah. sometimes, yeah, uh, yeah. People are desperate for meaning. Yeah. And those people are in tech companies, they're on the streets, they're in every community of the world. You know, I'm the social impact half of our duo here, and I did not expect in the beginning that tech companies and tech employees would be some of our biggest advocates. Mm. They are chomping at the bit to volunteer with these organizations. They're giving their money, they're giving their time, they're giving their products to make sure that they're building really powerful tools that have positive impact in the world. It's an alternative narrative to tech that we just aren't hearing enough. The one day per week that the major tech companies give their employees to go and work on projects that are like tech nonprofits, and they want to partner with you to because the people that work there, I, I do still think a lot of it is just talent retention um, based so that they want to retain the talent um, that works there by offering that day to go do that stuff. But also then the talent realizes that like, whoa, there could be so much more meaning by working on something here rather than this incremental tiny improvement that is only influencing a certain echelon of social economic status. Well, and you can really learn something. Right? Yeah. Like we have a volunteer, his name is Emmanuel Clue. He works at Google. He is on the site reliability engineering team. Mm -hmm. One of the things that site reliability engineers do, right, is make sure that the systems don't go down. Yep. Like that's very important for Google. Totes. Uh, and you need clear architecture to know how to do that. But that's not the kind of thing like you learn in school, right? It's something that you would learn on the job, but Google's not letting anyone touch their architecture. That is that's their prize calf. So Emmanuel volunteered for Fast Forward, met a bunch of our teams and realized, oh, they actually need architecture maps so they can open source their code and people, more people could help them. So he got all, and I mean all of his coworkers to start volunteering to map out the architecture of Fast Forward companies. What it's does that mean, map out your architecture? Literally like, this is how this product connects to this product, this is where this data source comes from. They're literally putting a map so that you could then open source your code and people could contribute to different parts of it. So like how one of the companies relates to another one of the companies in terms of their code bases, in terms of what their offerings are, mm -hmm. and so then yeah. they could maybe draw certain technology pieces from each other and then other nonprofits from around the world could help. It's kind of yeah, like- From a site reliability perspective, you know, the architecture maps make it easier to identify where the problems are because mm -hmm. you can understand like where something might be broken and how it's impacting other things in the system. But for the entrepreneurs who have started the organizations, it's a super helpful tool to have to say like, oh, we're not like, it's not just one massive 
uh, thing, you know, bundle of technology. Here's all the components and how they fit together, and individuals can participate and contribute to uh, the area that, like, where they have the expertise, so they feel like they can have the biggest impact, or whatever of the different components is currently the bottleneck for the organization. Mm -hmm. So it's really just a way of like breaking down what might sound like, you know, common lit literacy tool or Watt times like intelligence engine into the different components that make it work so that um, the other, so it makes it easier for other people to get involved. Okay, yeah, making, making more sense, okay. I wonder where that can be applied to all of civilization's knowledge, mm -hmm. just, yeah, where it can be applied to make it so that the architecting of the different um, pieces of technology and, and um, businesses and, um, like the could just a good way to put it is like where can a new erupt emerging technology be at play with synergizing with an existing one just things like mm -hmm. that I, I I like that a lot mm -hmm. um, okay what about on in terms of like a future um, of fast forward what does it look like is going to be happening is it going to just be continuing to um, accelerate tech nonprofits from around the world is there going to be other things that you embark on that you think yeah, can help move this forward faster? Yeah, we really believe that our biggest social problems deserve the best possible technology. And these social good startups are one of the best ways to create technology that is truly built for the customer that has been ignored by market models. And so we're working on a number of ways in which we can help social good startups scale. And some of that involves, we'll continue to run the accelerator. We also have a summit called Accelerate Good Global. Nice. That happens every spring. It's the largest gathering of tech nonprofits and philanthropists and tech companies that care about social good. Accelerate Good Global. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have a fund in which we are passing philanthropic capital through Ooh, okay. to tech nonprofits. Okay. Accelerate Good Global is happening in the spring every so, year. And yes. it just mm -hmm. do the locations change around? The world, or is again, it we make them come to us. <laughs> okay, San Francisco. <laughs> it's in San Francisco. Cool. Uh, Maybe we can yeah. do some partnership interviews well, with, yeah, with the different leadership that comes there in the spring, because mm -hmm. we love what how you, you. I love the sentence you said that the the um, the social the biggest social problems in the world deserve the best technology. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to to view this. Your essences. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. Okay, and so then there's also a fund. So anyone that's interested in philanthropically donating can donate to the fund, and then you guys allocate that money for the social impact. Yeah, and it can have quite, quite the ripple effect. We recently worked with HPE Foundation, and they gave each of their 60,000 employees $25 to allocate to a curated list of tech nonprofits. Sweet. It unlocked over a million bucks, and thousands of HPE employees all over the world got to be a part of the stories of these organizations and who they will become in the months and years ahead. Oh yeah, that's a great way to do it too. Yeah. So it's like getting that like a 25 buck token from mm -hmm. the major company that you work with. So they put in a million, split up into these tokens that each employee feels like they're contributing to the cause the, yeah. of their choice that are mm -hmm. is on the tech nonprofit list. Yeah. That's also really interesting one if we can get more of the massive tech giants around the world to do stuff like that mm -hmm. that's another way to accelerate but they're really it. empowering their employees to make the decisions they are, yeah. yeah instead Which of just really them giving it mm -hmm. they get to empower their employees to do it's it it's not just the philanthropy team it's the every employee who gets a very democratic say in how the company is uh, spending its philanthropic dollars and tech Super workers special. get it tech workers understand the potential for scale and efficiency that comes from technology really in a way that maybe others in the world um, haven't quite seen it yet. And so there is this like-to-like, -like, that maybe you care deeply, homelessness is your core issue. There are tech nonprofits that are addressing homelessness. Perhaps uh, education is your core issue, there are tech nonprofits that are addressing it. So it allows mm -hmm. these tech workers all over the world to participate in an ecosystem uh, that you know the products they're building in their day job are also part of. Yeah, tech scales incredibly well yeah. and yeah to be able to get it um, targeting the biggest social challenges I love this so the big philanthropic fund getting companies involved with that the summit that's happening every year in the spring here mm -hmm. and then continuing to run the accelerator yeah. five companies a batch once 
Now it's now 10 companies. 10, yeah. It's up to 10. So you went from five to 10. Yeah. So it kind of went like five and then like six, seven, five, eight five, per <laughs> year. Like every year you've upped it by one company-ish. Mm -hmm. yeah. Congratulations, that's massive, Thanks. yeah. Wow. Okay, so up to 10 now. So you're also looking to identify new um, non nonprofit tech companies around the world. So if people have um, mm -hmm. identified that from their local communities worldwide, they can submit it through the website. Yep, send them to info at ffwd.org. Info, info at ffwd.org for yeah. the submissions. Okay, cool. And if you are a tech for good enthusiast or a tech for good uh, a tech worker, we have a Facebook community. It's called the Global Tech Nonprofit Community, where new tech nonprofits are starting every day and asking for help, and people are giving advice and support to help scale these really cool social good ideas. Whoa, so then um, also individual tech workers can join that community yeah. and then they can uh, donate their time and resources to helping the different yeah. nonprofits. Okay, mm -hmm. cool, cool. Wow, great work. Yeah, you built Thank out a you. bunch of different um, streams of ways to, to achieve the goals that you're going for, which I love that. Nice. So when does the, when does the batch start, the next one? Or are you in the oh, middle? we're in the middle of it. You're in the middle of the one. Yeah. Okay. And so there's 10 that you're currently incubating right now. Yeah. Okay, okay. So those two that you gave us at the end mm -hmm. were both in like this? OpenAQ is... OpenAQ is in the current batch. Um, there's a group called Almost Fun SAT. Uh, they just launched this week, which is great content to teach. The SAT is, in fact, almost fun. Almost <laughs> yeah. fun, yeah. Uh, to teach low-income kids how to do well on the test. Oh, sweet. And they're starting with the SAT, but they will have a whole suite of tests that they're teaching low-income kids from under-resourced schools how to compete well. How to compete well yeah. on, those, on the bigger tests. On standardized tests. On the standardized tests. Nice, so that's also in this batch. Almost fun SAT. That's, that's, that's a great branding because the kids will they'll be like, yeah, I align with that. That's, that's right, because it's not, you can't just say fun SAT. No. Fun standardized testing. No. Almost fun. Almost. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, and then, okay, so then when does, so the submission process is already starting for next year as well. People can submit any time for next year. Yeah, in fact, uh, we believe our role on the planet is to help create an ecosystem to support tech nonprofits. So we have a lot That's of excellent. services for groups that are not currently in our accelerator from our Facebook community to a weekly email, which sends funding resources and prize information and press opportunities for any tech nonprofit globally. We want more of these. We really believe that yes. this is the key to unlocking scaled impact. Mm -hmm. yes. We're even creating a playbook for aspiring entrepreneurs who don't feel like they don't know where to start and have questions about what it means to use tech focused on impact. We'll launch later nice. this year. Nice, nice. A playbook. So for those that just don't necessarily know how to endeavor into a tech nonprofit themselves, that they mm -hmm. can start from step one through mm -hmm. reading. It's intimidating, yeah. right? It, is, it sounds a little intimidating. Yeah. Tech nonprofit, well, mm -hmm. how do I do that? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And then how do I pair that with one of the greatest like SDGs, right? One of the massive right. social right. challenges on the planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not an incremental improvement for those already wealthy, but the, yeah, the bigger yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. So then that'll be a component of it too, pairing the tech, helping them pair it with the biggest social challenges in the playbook. I think so. I mean, it, the reality is most entrepreneurs find us already with some, something that they can't let go of, right? They're already yeah. either grown up with or feel like there's, this is the only thing, like this is what their calling is in life. Um, and so most of them have gotten to the point of maybe mapping it to the problem, but they don't know what the practical steps are then to move it, move it forward. And the, the playbook is meant to help them tackle those, those incremental steps towards getting a momentum to have the impact they want to see. Nice. And tentatively, like so next year-ish, you're thinking on the playbook? Uh, yes, early, by early next year for sure. Nice, nice. We, we look forward to uh, co-promoting that with you and getting more people excited about tech nonprofits. It's awesome. And tackling the biggest social challenges. I want to ask you guys a couple mm -hmm. questions on the way out that we typically ask our guests. Mm -hmm. um, we went over all those different options of getting people involved. Um, we have gotten a, a better idea about your ethos and essence. It's been a lot of fun. Um, do you guys think that that we come from somewhere beyond this physical world into these bodies to play on the planet? 
I don't know. I'm open to the idea. But mostly, I wish we were just playing nicer together. And like the things that keep me up at night is more about how, if this is a simulation, how we are interacting within it today. Mm. And, you know, um, we call ourselves impatient optimists in part because like, I believe we can do better and I cannot wait to get going on it. Likewise. Yeah. I love that. That's the first time I heard impatient optimist. <laughs> One that's like hardcore just executing the future that they want to live in yeah. fast and effectively. Yeah, yeah. Or okay. live in the now I want to live in. We're living there the now, There is enough yeah. craziness happening that we, you know, that is a life's work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that we'll know. I don't know if it's in our capacity and our consciousness to be able to differentiate between what's real, what's a dream. Actually, when I sat down, I saw oh, yeah. this thing over here. Yeah. Dreams won't work unless you do. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, it doesn't say reality won't work unless <laughs> we do. You know, like, does it matter what's the reality, what's the dream? I don't know. It's a good question. But I feel like regardless, oh, we so need good. to, uh, <laughs> we decided we wanted to work on these challenges, try to make it better. Yeah, yeah. So you see the, the, the reality that you are immersed in right now has all of the things that you want it to be better. Mm -hmm. And so you dedicate your lives to, to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, likewise, likewise with, the, with the show as well is taking all of the people that come on it and um, helping them shine at what they're doing to to up to make those updates in the world. So mm -hmm. now, does it does it feel like we all come from a single source? Does it feel like we all come from the same origin? Uh, I think it can. I think part of um, what's interesting to me is like uh, there's this idea that consciousness. Will bring us all together and like peace and harmony um but sometimes when i look out into the world even like the non-human world like nature the sources that came before us that we evolved from are also like pretty brutal um the way that like species have evolved and what comes after that particular animal often is a predator to themselves um, so, um, I don't know, part of me wonders if the, the oneness necessarily means or is consistent with like the view of kindness or that like everything is always peaceful. You know, in software, mm. people are always like out um, fixing bugs. And then there's this phrase that uh, you know, is something a bug or is it a feature? Mm. And so it could be that the way that the system works, the oneness works, where things are sometimes kind but not always kind, uh, is not just a bug, but it could be a feature of progress for this uh, oneness that we only a little bit understand. So it's like viewing the artistic expression of source or God as mm -hmm. it having the exact way that it's supposed to be because if it was all just peace and love, then it would there wouldn't be the other aspect of that duality that makes it so beautiful, which is all of the bugs or are they features that then have to be uh, tended to, that have to be updated, that give us a purpose or a meaning to go and tend to. Mm -hmm. Maybe something like that. I mean, our time, it's just a point in time. And uh, as you mentioned, there's like 100 billion people that have come before us. There will be billions and billions more to come after. Um, and maybe we're just a step a step along that way. Yeah. That's a, that we don't know what's going to come next because we can't see in front of us. That deep time perspective is critical for kids and adults to get that mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Even the smartest ones can only see behind. They can't really see see forward right not really so our well. office is yeah. in the presidio yeah that's seeing forward right <laughs> yeah. the presidio uh, is the home base of yoda yeah yoda is famous for his perspective 900 years of uh 
perspective he could bring to the world, yet he couldn't see the encroachment of the, the dark side. So sometimes it's hard to see where things are going. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of room for the dark side right now, and it seems like it's coming through the, uh, the bodies of people that are not as uh, spiritually whole. So if there's a fragmentation in people's essence and their spirit, then there's a room for malevolence to come through it and be at play on the planet. And so to work on one's own true uh, connection to nature, to source, as well as one's connection to their own North Star and what brings them meaning every day, it, it removes the, the space needed for malevolence to potentially come through. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we've been working a lot with indigenous wisdom and in trying to um, help integrate and synthesize that into Silicon Valley technology. You know, Shenzhen's coming up, London's, uh, Tel Aviv. There's so many of these little hubs around the world um, that are coming up. Africa's about to erupt in population and creativity. And so just like how do we not only go there and provide them with the material, like the Amazon versus Alibaba source, like providing them toothpaste and toothbrushes and socks and all that stuff, but underwear. But how do we um, effectively not make a scramble for Africa version two and how do we make it instead a uh, maximize the creative potential of the people that are coming through there so all these styles of, of, of thinking and questions is you know what we are so passionate about on the program you kind of touched on this a little bit but are we in a simulation I guess the way we touched on before is uh, I don't know if we'll ever know. Uh, if so, I'm very curious what's outside of it. But in the meantime, we're impatient optimists and uh, taking what may just be a dream, but playing a role of trying to bring um, tech and focusing it not just on these uh, business problems, but also on social impact. And helping people love a little bit better. Yeah. Right, like uh, one of the things that's so powerful about spending your summer with these entrepreneurs who could do anything but they've chosen to work on these social problems is that like what is key is that they're grounded in this love of humanity and like how do you unlock and scale that? And it's a powerful space to be in. So I don't know if it's a simulation or not, <laughs> but uh, I, I like some of the features that are in it. Yeah, like love <laughs> yeah, and friendship I'm down with love. and cooperation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, social justice things that um, that are baked in. A lot of potential. Yeah, in the way the rules are <laughs> yeah, set up, yeah. and it's up to us to figure out what we do. I'm very uh, curious about your own relationships with your higher selves. Do you guys feel like you're connected spiritually to something that is greater than yourselves? I do. I was raised Catholic, so uh, this like grounding in social justice is very core to how I show up in the world, and understanding that like this is this is just temporary, and I have a responsibility as a human who gets to be on the planet to make it better in any way that I can. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons, like when we work with all these volunteers and we work with these folks, like I see them seeking meaning and looking for opportunities to unlock that meaning. And that feels like very universal. You may not have to, you may not agree with who, my higher power, um, but I see them seeking a better way to be on. Yeah. I think it manifests itself to me most often like in beauty. So that could be like the creation of life, like a kid getting born or like sunrises and sunsets. I feel yeah. like it's in moments like those, like looking at the stars where you think about like how expansive it is and how uh, small of a blip you know, we may be in time and in space compared to everything else that's out there. Mm. Yeah, those are great. Then, and that, that answers our most beautiful thing in the world question then. What yeah. about you, Shannon? Where's, what's the most beautiful thing in the world? One of the things that's really fun about running a nonprofit is that you spend a lot of time thanking people like that is one of your core responsibilities is to be in the world expressing gratitude for the generosity and kindness and wisdom that they that folks give to the, the thing that you're working on. And so um, 
it's one of the things I think is most beautiful in the world is that the opportunity to recognize when something truly good has happened and to express gratitude for the human being and the entities that enabled it. It's, a, it's an amazing gift. And then that's your day job. It's like, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah gratitude is so powerful humility is another one that's so powerful equanimity nuance these types of words that if we embody on a daily basis can help us so much this has been such a beautiful conversation you two thank you for coming on the show thank you for having us thank you for talking to us thank you shannon yeah so grateful thank you likewise really grateful thank you thank you for all your incredible work both of you And thanks for seeing behind the scenes as well. Thank you very much. Live to the audience. Yeah, <laughs> to our audience. Also to Ori Shapiro for producing. Thank you very much, Ooh. Ori, too. Also, everyone, thank you so much for watching. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking. Also, check out the links in the bio below to fast forward. Check out their Twitter. Also, check out Kevin Shannon's LinkedIn profiles. And have more conversations with your friends, your coworkers, people online about so, on social media about the conversations that we had about today. Talk more about accelerating technology for social impact and how to get involved in the myriad of ways that we talked about today. And also support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the organizations, the spiritual leaders around the world that you believe in. Support them, help them grow, help them increase their impact. All of our links to our show simulation are below to our Patreon, our cryptocurrency link, our PayPal link. You can design cool merch and get paid. All those links are below. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Thank you very much for tuning in, and we will see you soon. Peace. Thank you.